Bibles with you once more, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. And if you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 this morning, and if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1053. While you're finding your place there, uh, I was told that last week we missed a few new introductions. And so I'm going to ask uh, Scotty if he'll stand and introduce his new daughter to the church family. Now, I don't believe the Spencers are here today, but I don't trust my middle-aged eyes. So, uh, nope, they're not here. So, we'll try for next Sunday then, okay? Matthew chapter 23, we'll begin reading in verse 13. And this is what the Word of God says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, 
You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Matthew chapter 23 is a devastating chapter. In it, Jesus exposes and relentlessly condemns the false spiritual leaders of Israel. In particular, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he does it by pronouncing eight woes on them in some of the strongest language that has ever left his lips. Jesus warned about these false religious leaders in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, his last sermon, it consists almost entirely of warnings about them and warnings to them. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson called this sustained denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees the rolling thunder of Christ's wrath. Another commentator spoke of these woes as being like thunder in their unanswerable severity and like lightning in their unsparing exposure. Standing in the midst of the temple with a captive audience, Jesus solemnly pronounces woe to you eight times, and he refers to the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites seven times. And the word woe that he uses gives the picture of an outcry from the gut, an outcry of anger and pain. In the Greek Old Testament, this word is used to express grief, and despair, and sorrow, and dissatisfaction, and pain. In the New Testament, it's used to speak of both sorrow and of judgment, of punishment and pity, of cursing and compassion. Jesus used the word woe against the scribes and the Pharisees as a declaration of judgment from God. That when The word woe is uttered from the lips of Jesus. The judgment of God has taken effect. And the word hypocrite, as we've seen before, it came eventually to refer to actors who wore a mask and performed a role in a play. It meant that they were fake. They were not real. And that's what it's used to describe of the scribes and the Pharisees. In this passage. And you'll notice in addition to the use of the woes. And the hypocrite. Jesus also speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees. As sons of hell. Blind guides. Fools. Robbers. Self-indulgent. Whitewashed tombs. Full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Serpents. Vipers. And persecutors and murderers of God's people. And as one author noted. Jesus uttered every syllable in this passage with absolute self-control and with devastating intensity. Friends, the scribes and the Pharisees believed genuinely from their hearts that they were doing God's work, that they were obeying God's word, and they were accomplishing God's will. And yet, despite their sincerity, Jesus clearly exposes them And shows them that they're deceived. And as a result, they receive the most serious pronouncements of damnation ever uttered by Jesus Christ. 
But I want to remind all of us this morning in this sobering passage that these warnings don't just apply to the scribes and the Pharisees. And they don't just apply to religious leaders, though I believe that religious leaders should pay very close attention to the words of this passage. These warnings apply to everyone who professes Christ. Because it is possible to deceive ourselves just as the scribes and the Pharisees deceived themselves. And the woes of this final sermon from Jesus They stand in contrast to the Beatitudes of his first sermon. And they illustrate for us the difference between true religion and false religion. Now the outline is simple this morning. It's not fancy. There's eight points because there's eight woes. And now you just got really nervous because you heard eight points. Don't be nervous. We're all in this together. So let's look at the first woe in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This first woe is an indictment on the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen, for placing obstacles in the way of people who were trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. And rather than opening the doors of the kingdom of heaven for others in their hypocrisy, Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven in the faces of the people. And the picture that Jesus is painting here in verse 13 suggests that the scribes and the Pharisees were standing just outside the gates of the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who was trying to get to God through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, when they came to those gates, they shut the gates and they pushed the people away. That the people of Jesus' day who came to the religious leaders to find help in their relationship with God were actually being sent away from the Messiah and from God himself. And Jesus was saying to these religious leaders that he had come to Israel to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to make an entrance for all who would believe in him. But just as one Jew would show interest in Jesus and in the gospel that he was proclaiming, the scribes and the Pharisees would immediately pounce on them and put obstacles in their way to keep them from the Lord. By misinterpreting the word of God, by slandering and denying Jesus, by rejecting repentance and grace, and by elevating a salvation by works, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, sealed their fate and they sealed the fate of every single person who would listen to them and follow them. And friends, listen to the heart of your pastor carefully. This is the ultimate danger of false religion, and of a false gospel, and false religious leaders. They keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. False leaders proclaiming a false gospel may feed bodies, may stimulate minds, and may calm emotions, but they will inevitably condemn souls. 
They may raise moral standards. They may increase worldly success. They may help people overcome practical problems. They may improve outward relationships with other people. But their false teaching, their false gospel, their false religion will not remove sin. And it will not improve someone's relationship with God. It might promise heaven, but in the end, it will only deliver hell. And that's what Jesus says of these leaders. False leaders proclaiming a false gospel, purporting a false religion. Unless you think that that was just the culture of Jesus' day, I would remind you this morning that we are surrounded by those three errors even now. Notice, Jesus says in verse 13 that not only did these self-appointed doorkeepers not allow others to go in. Look at the text. They refused to go in themselves. And this is the very opposite of the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. And in the first point of his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 3, this is the very first preaching point that Jesus gives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is not talking about physical poverty in that verse, friends. He is talking about a poverty of spirit. And a poverty of soul. And he says the blessings of God are on the person who recognizes how poor they are in their soul and spirit. And how desperate in need they are of the gospel and of a savior. And those who come to Christ in a poverty of spirit like he is proclaiming. Listen to what Jesus says. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so when we're talking about the kingdom of God, friends, according to Jesus, there's two postures of heart. You can come in poverty of spirit and enter the kingdom of heaven. Or you can come in a prideful spirit and be denied the kingdom of heaven. Those are the only two options. And only those who will come in a poverty of spirit are those who will enter the kingdom of God. And so I ask you this morning, what is the posture of your spirit? Is it poor? Is it dependent? Or is it full of pride? The second woe is found in verse 14. And if you're using the ESV Bible, you say, well, where's verse 14? I can't find it in there. Well, you should look in the footnotes of your Bible and you'll find verse 14. And in the footnotes of your Bible, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. And as I've mentioned, in the ESV translation, verse 14 is in the footnotes. And if you're using the New American Standard Bible, you'll find verse 14 in the text, but you'll find it in brackets. And it's treated this way in the ESV, and it's treated this way in the New American Standard Bible, because this verse was not found in any of the earliest and best manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. And somewhere along the way, a copyist found it in Mark chapter 12 and verse 40, and found it in Luke chapter 20 and verse 47. And that's why it's placed in the footnotes or placed 
in brackets. But it's still, based on Mark and Luke, authoritative. And what we learn from this verse is that in Jesus' day, scribes often served as estate planners for widows. And it gave them the opportunity to convince widows that they would be serving God by supporting the temple or by supporting the scribes in their work in in either way. What Jesus is saying in this verse is that these false religious leaders preyed on the vulnerable, the most vulnerable of society. They preyed on the widows. And you'll notice in the verse that additionally, instead of mourning over their sins, the scribes and the Pharisees displayed their so-called piety publicly. And they did it to receive the praise of men. And again, this is the exact opposite character that Jesus says should belong to a person who is a part of the kingdom of heaven. For in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Did you hear that? Blessed are those who mourn. And it's not talking about the grieving of a loss. It's talking about mourning over your sin. Because Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 and Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 go together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poverty of spirit over their sin. And blessed are those who mourn over their sin, who grieve over what sin has done in their life. Blessed are those, because when you mourn over your sin, listen to Jesus' promise. You'll be comforted. And what will you be comforted with? The truths of the gospel. The truths that Jesus has proclaimed. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they lacked the comfort that the gospel brings. They prayed on the vulnerable. They engaged in a religious show. Verse 14 says that it was their practice to make long public prayers with lofty words and refuse to grieve over the sinful conditions of their souls. And look what Jesus says in verse 14. As a result of the way they've lived their life, they'll receive a greater condemnation. A greater condemnation. And it begs the question this morning, friends. In your mourning over your sin, have you found the comfort of the gospel? That's why Jesus came to comfort us with the promises and the truth of the gospel. That if we will be poor in spirit and acknowledge our sin and our separation from God and be broken over that. And come to him. We'll receive the kingdom of heaven. And if we mourn over our sin in sorrowful repentance. He'll comfort us with the assurance of our salvation and the promises and the hope of the gospel. Do you know this comfort? Have you experienced the comfort that Jesus and his gospel brings? The third woe is found in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, look at the text. You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. One writer commented about this verse. The scribes and the Pharisees not only shut the people out of heaven... They opened the trap door to hell. And Jesus says that they were intent on making proselytes. It literally came to be used of an outsider who was brought in. And so in the New Testament times, a great effort was being made to convert Gentiles to Judaism. And Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees worked aggressively at this, traveling on land and sea to make one convert. 
J.C. Ryle, in his work Expository Thoughts on Matthew, said they labored incessantly to make men join their party and adopt their opinions. And they did this from no desire to benefit men's souls in the least or to bring them to God. They only did it to swell the ranks of their sect and to increase the number of their adherents and therefore their own importance. It wasn't about trying to help people, in other words. It was about puffing them up and making them more prominent in the eyes of society. Now look at verse 15. Jesus says that once they make one of these proselytes, once they make one of these converts, the scribes and the Pharisees, look at it, make him twice as much a child of hell as themselves. What's he saying? He's saying that when a person becomes a convert and follows their leader, oftentimes they have more zeal than the person that they're following. And Jesus is declaring that the followers of the scribes and the Pharisees were full of enthusiasm. And this enthusiasm and this zeal only served to double their condemnation. They were characterized, Jesus says, if you see it in verse 15, as being children of hell. It referred to a person who was characterized by hellishness. And to be twice condemned was to be twice a son of hell. It means that a person was doubly hellish and doubly condemned. And the word hell that he uses... It describes the valley outside of Jerusalem where refuge and trash was burned. Where in the days of the Old Testament, child sacrifices were offered as burnt offerings to a false god. And the New Testament uses this word to describe the eternal punishment and judgment of hell. Where anyone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior will be sent to live for all eternity in condemnation and in punishment. And Jesus says, those who have been deceived by these false leaders, they are doubly deceived. They are doubly condemned. They're not just children of hell. They are doubly children of hell. Do you know that Jesus gives the opposite picture of this in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you see the progression? Poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, a meekness, a humility. That's how you enter the kingdom. Not this way. And friends, I can't think of a much more sobering verse than maybe a couple others that I'm going to show you in a few minutes than verse 15. Because as Christians, the Bible says that we're all to make disciples. That if we're a disciple of Christ, we're to make disciples. And here's what I know after living life for a while. We all have some sort of influence and some fear or another. And people watch us and people follow our example for the good or for the bad or for the in-between. And verse 15 begs the question, what kind of disciples are you producing? What kind of converts are you making in your home? What kind of example are your children seeing? 
What kind of example are your grandchildren seeing? What kind of disciples are you trying to make at work? I mean, is your testimony the same as the way you work and live? That's what 15 begs us to ask. We're examples to somebody. What kind of disciple are we forming? What kind of disciple are we influencing? What kind of disciple are we making? In verses 16 to 22, we see the fourth woe. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if someone swears by the altar it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now I want you to notice in verses 16 to 22 that there is a progression of thought that takes place. Look at how he begins. He begins by referring to the scribes and the Pharisees as blind guides in verse 16. And then in verse 17 he refers to them as blind fools. And then in verse 19, he refers to them as blind men. And with this progression, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the scribes and the Pharisees were unaware of their spiritual blindness. And they were unaware of their inability to lead others to the light. The spiritually blind were leading the spiritually blind. And in the context of verses 16 to 22, their blindness was manifested In their oath making. And in speaking of these oaths, Jesus is referring to rules that the scribes and the Pharisees had concocted to allow people to swear by certain things. And if they sweared by those things, they wouldn't be bound by their oath or their promise. But if they swore by other things, they would be bound by those things in their oath and in their promise. And Jesus highlights these rules in verses 16 and 18. He says, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And then in verse 18, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. And according to these principles, you could lie all you wanted to. According to the scribes and the Pharisees, as long as you promised it, Uh, by the temple or the altar, but if you swore to the gold of the temple or if you swore to the gift on the altar, you were bound by your promise. And this just gives evidence, friends, of their hypocrisy and of their sinfulness. All they were doing was looking for a loophole when their promises didn't serve their selfish desires. But notice what Jesus does in verses 17 and 19. He makes it clear that their reasoning was foolish. And then in verses 20 to 22, he went on to point out that everything involved with the temple and everything involved with the altar involved God because God is the creator and owner of everything. And so to swear by anything involves God and therefore makes everyone accountable to God. And all of these man-made rules about oaths were simply an attempt for them to justify their sin. Now Jesus 
addressed this trivialization of the truth in his Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, this is what he said. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, listen, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Don't take an oath at all. Don't swear by anything. Say yes and say no and fulfill your words. In other words, be a person of integrity so that the tongue in your mouth and the tongue in your shoe go in the same direction. Don't promise stuff that you're never going to fulfill. Jesus gave the antidote for it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Don't look for a loophole for your sin. Hunger for righteousness. Thirst for it. Crave it. Say yes. Say no. And follow through. That's what Jesus was saying. So I wonder, do you have this hunger and thirst? Do you long for the righteousness of God? Or do you look for loopholes to accommodate your sin? The fifth woe. Found in verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees in these verses for magnifying the insignificant and minimizing the essential. And in verse 23, he references the law requiring the tithing of grain and wine and oil and the firstborn of the flocks, as well as the fruits of the trees found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And according to Jesus, the Pharisees took it upon themselves to expand these tithing laws to include a tithe of household spices, mint and dill and cumin. And though the scribes were meticulous In their tithing, they never missed a one. Jesus says that they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he borrowed this word weightier from the rabbinical tradition that we studied several months ago in the Gospel of Matthew where the rabbis separated the duties of the law between more serious and less serious, more weighty and less weighty. And the scribes and the Pharisees took the priorities of the kingdom and they put them upside down. And they made the tithing so important and weighty and they neglected Mercy and justice and faithfulness. And in this statement of rebuke, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and refers to the prophet Micah. And in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, this is what Micah prophesied about approaching the Lord. He said, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And listen to his point. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what God says through the prophet Micah in approaching him. To walk humbly before the Lord. And the scribes and the Pharisees were unfair. They were unjust. They were unmerciful. They were brutal. They were unforgiving. The only people they forgive for their failures was themselves. And Jesus says, you've inverted the whole kingdom. You've elevated the minutia above the most important. He never said they were wrong for tithing. Look at the text. He never said that. What he said was, you should keep tithing, and while you're tithing, you should find some mercy. You should find some justice. You should find some faithfulness. Instead of preying on people and putting obstacles in people's way, you should humble yourself and help them. And then he illustrates it in verse 24 with a gnat and a camel. And the gnat and the camel represent the smallest and the largest ceremonially unclean animals. And depending on who you read and study in history, some will say that the Pharisees had a practice of using a filter to filter out all of the gnats and the bugs in their wine before they drank it. Others say that the Pharisees had a practice of using their teeth. And so when they would drink the wine, they would clench their teeth to filter out the bugs. And Jesus says to them, look at the picture now. Look at the text and see the picture. You tithe, but you have no mercy. You have no justice. You have no faithfulness. You have no compassion. You only care about yourselves. And you elevate the minutia and put all of these burdens on other people. And you're such fools. You clench your teeth together to keep out the bugs so you won't be unclean. And then you'll turn around and you'll swallow a camel. Do you see it? It's the height of hypocrisy. And Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit, mourning over your sins. The meek shall inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And see, friends, when you elevate the minutiae over the weightier matters, you forget where God found you. And you have no compassion or mercy on those who are struggling with the very things that you struggled with when you entered the kingdom. But in your pride and in your self-righteousness, you've got it together. So... You better dress a certain way. You better talk a certain way. You better act a certain way. God will love you less. No mercy. No compassion. No faithfulness. And I wonder if that doesn't describe some of us this morning. Full of the minutia. 
love a good debate, love elevating things over people, having no compassion for brokenness, struggles, pain. You've forgotten where God found you. You've forgotten what a mess you were in until Jesus changed you. The sixth woe is found in verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. To further illustrate their hypocrisy, Jesus uses the picture of cleaning the outside of a cup and a plate, but leaving the inside dirty. And here's the language that he's using. It's a, it's a picture of a beautiful plate. And you can just imagine yourself going to someone's house for a big dinner. And they've got this big fancy plate. And it looks so good. And it's full of food. And they cleaned all the outside of it. But when you start putting your fork into the plate, you find all kinds of dried, old food in there. That's the picture it's, it's kind of like the philosophy of using a dishwasher. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, there is a philosophy of using a dishwasher. And there's a right philosophy and a wrong philosophy. And the wrong philosophy is you have a dishwasher. You don't rinse anything. You just take it as it is and you put it in the dishwasher. And the dishwasher rinses it and does its job. Friends. That is the wrong way to approach the dishwasher. The right philosophy is you rinse all of that crud, and then you put it in, and it's extra clean. I got a witness back there. I see it. Yes, sir, brother. Amen. There is a right way and a wrong way. Now, I can tell by the room that a lot of you do it the wrong way. So just imagine if you had your pastor over at your house and you did it the wrong way and you pulled out a dish and you didn't realize that all of that dried stuff was still in there and it didn't come clean and you put the food in it and then you handed it to him. Do you see the text? Jesus says that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were like. Oh, they were all about the outward while on the inside, they were impure. They were unholy. Jesus actually says, look at the text. They were full of greed and self-indulgence. They pillaged. They extorted. They plundered. They had no self-control. Whatever they wanted, whatever they desired, that's what they did, no matter who it hurt. They robbed and hurt people to satisfy their own greed. They plundered their souls and the souls of those who were following them. And look what Jesus says in verse 26. He tells them, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside will be clean. And see, when you use the dishwasher the right way, and you pull it out, both the outside and the inside are clean. That's Jesus' point, right? Use the dishwasher the right way. That's the whole point of Matthew 23. But now listen to me. We're just like the scribes and Pharisees. We come to church. We smile. We say hello. 
How are you? And some of the very people that we talked to were full of anger. We're full of bitterness. We're full of unforgiveness. But man, we shaved, we showered, we put on our makeup, we got dressed, we cleaned it all up on the outside to cover up the stench and the decay on the inside. And Jesus said of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're hypocrites for doing that. What would he say of us? The seventh woe is found in verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and you're full of lawlessness. This is the whole theme that is running through the gospel of Matthew. Jesus says over and over and over, scribes and Pharisees, you observe the outward, you practice the outward, you neglect the inward, you have no humility, you have no purity. And he's confronting them over and over with this. And he's referring to an old law in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 19 and verse 16, that stated that anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. And when he's talking about these whitewashed tombs, he's talking about the practice they would do in his day leading up to Passover. They would go out and they would paint over all of the tombs that were on the route to the city as people made the journey for Passover. So that no one would touch those tombs unmistakably and be impure and not be able to participate in the Passover festivities. And Jesus is using that practice to illustrate the condition of the scribes and the Pharisees. You whitewash, you clean up the outward, but inside you're full of dead bones. You're a corpse. You have no life in you. They had forgotten what Solomon warned of in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, that we're to keep our heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of life. Their heart was corrupt. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now listen to me, dear friend. Listen to me. If you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. Your goodness never meets God's standard of holiness and perfection. And what you literally are this very moment sitting in this room is a body that is alive on the outside. It's whitewashed. It's clean. And on the inside, you are spiritually dead. You're alive outward. You're dead inward. And you're just like the scribes and the Pharisees. And the only way that you have life inside of you 
is by confessing that you're a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and turning from your sin and believing in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in your place, died a death you deserve to die for your sin, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and is coming back. You believe that? You trust in that? You ask him to save you and forgive you, and you get life. But right now, you're a walking corpse. You're a tomb with no life. You need Jesus. The eighth woe. And you thought I wouldn't do it. <laughs> 29 to 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This final woe. It's the most serious. And it's the climax of the passage. Can't, can't you feel it? Haven't you felt it this morning from the very first woe to the last one? It building in intensity. And here it comes to its climax. And in these verses, Jesus charges the scribes and the Pharisees as being true sons of their ancestral fathers who murdered the prophets of God that God had sent to them. Now notice verse 29. These prophets were greatly respected in Judaism. And Jesus, Jesus says in verse 29 that the scribes and the Pharisees had taken it upon themselves to build tombs for these prophets and to decorate monuments for all of these righteous people to give them honor and glory for their service to God. Moreover, in verse 30, Jesus says that the religious leaders did this to give the impression that if they had lived in the days of their fathers, their ancestors, they would not have taken part with their fathers in murdering these prophets. They did it for outward show like they did everything else to testify, we're not murderers. We would never do anything like our ancestors did. But now notice verse 31. Jesus says that this wasn't true. That by their work, he saw them as sons of those who murdered the prophets. That by building the tombs, the scribes and the Pharisees were witnessing against themselves that they were merely completing the job that their ancestors did. So what does he do? In verse 32, Jesus tells them, fill up your cup. What does that mean? Finish the job that your relatives did. Why did he say it? Because he knew the condition of their hearts. And they knew, he knew in that very moment, these false religious leaders who were standing before him were plotting to take his life. They were plotting to kill the prophet of all prophets. They were plotting to kill the son of God. And you still have your Bible open? Look at how he ends in verse 33. With a rhetorical question, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape 
being sentenced to hell? The answer to the question is obvious. They couldn't escape being sentenced to hell on their own. Especially if they carried out the evil that was residing in their hearts to crucify Jesus Christ. And notice Jesus' words in verse 33. They were just like the words of John the Baptist when he was baptizing at the Jordan River. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to him to be baptized. And he looked at him and he said, you're a bunch of vipers. Go and repent and show me that you've repented. And then I'll baptize you. And this is the same clarion call that Jesus is giving to them at the end of this passage. Woe to you, your snakes, your brood of vipers. How are you going to escape hell unless you come to me? Well, they ignored John the Baptist. And they ignored Jesus. And hell was their doom. These words give a picture. He's referring to farming terminology when a farmer at the end of crop season would burn his fields and get ready for the next season. And as he would set them on fire, the holes where the vipers had their nests would be trapped. And they'd try to get away from the fire. But they couldn't. This is Jesus' words to them. You're trapped. Your house is on fire. I'm the only escape. And you'll have nothing to do with me. Woe to you. When you look at verse 33, it's almost an invitation, isn't it? This is his final sermon. These are the last words that he will preach to them. And it is a message of condemnation and a message of invitation. Judgment is coming and it's not too late. Oh, these scribes and Pharisees, they thought they were doing the will of God. Jesus says to them, you're preparing yourself for hell. Woe to you. What a passage. Absolutely devastating. It penetrates. Listen, if you have listened to these words from Jesus seriously, it penetrates to the deepest part of your soul and your spirit. And it warns and reminds all of us of the danger of trying to hide our true spiritual condition. That the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites at the very core of their being. They were play actors devoid of faith and devoid of fruit. And if we're not careful, we can become just like them. Oh, friends, it's highly possible to go to church regularly, to attend a Bible study, to be a part of a small group, to read your Bible, to study your Bible. And it is highly possible to go through the motions It's highly possible to check the boxes, and it's highly possible at the end of all of that to remain devoid of spiritual life, acting in a play. And this passage demands that we ponder this reality. 
And so I ask you this morning, do you have spiritual life? Do you know Jesus? If you died today, would you be in heaven? Does the Spirit of God live inside of you? Whoever has the Spirit of God has life. Whoever does not have the Spirit of God does not have life. Are you pretending on the outside and something totally different is going on on the inside? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you love the things you used to hate and hate the things you used to love? Leaders, it is possible for you and I to be spiritual leaders and pretend to be something that we're not and attempt to cover up our spiritual blindness and the decay of our lives. It is possible for us to be like the scribes and the Pharisees standing at the gates of the kingdom, putting obstacles in people's way to come to Jesus. This passage demands of every spiritual leader humility and a sober-mindedness to look at their life and their doctrine. And finally, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you cannot use this passage to justify your unbelief and say, the church is full of hypocrites, so I don't have to believe. Well, you've seen from Jesus' words, the religious leaders of his day were hypocrites. There's been hypocrites forever. That's no excuse. You're standing, unbeliever, at the gates of hell like this passage shows. It's at the very steps of the door. And one day you're going to cross the final step. And it's going to be too late. And are you going to say to God on that day of judgment, I refuse to believe because the church was full of hypocrites? Is that really what you want your answer to be on that day? When God has shown you through his word and he's given you his son, won't you come to Christ today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We're humbled by it. And God, after sitting under it, there are things that we need to confess to you today. And so even now in this moment, we confess. And we pray that you would hear and forgive. And by your grace, you would strengthen and restore. We pray, God, for those who are without Christ, that you would draw them to yourself even now. And we think of the hurting today, the burdened, the broken. Oh, God, take your word today and feed and nourish the souls of your people. Heal them, restore them. 
Build your church and your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.